are entering the Freedom Hut. The Democrats are going full socialist as Bernie Sanders wins the Nevada caucuses. Plus, the Russia election scam hits another snag. There's a deep state hit list they're talking about now. Coronavirus fears are on the increase. Plus, we'll talk about the movie Parasite, that one best picture, because I saw it. That and more coming up. This, this is the Buck Sexton Show, where the mission, or mission is to decode what really matters with actionable intelligence. One small Make no mistake. America, great. You're a great American. Again. The Buck Sexton Show begins. Former CIA analyst. Former member of the NYPD. He's a great guy. It is Buck Sexton. Now. Welcome, everybody, to the Buck Sexton Show. Man, I am fired up and ready to roll. I hope you are, too. Hope you had a great relaxing, restful, productive weekend, maybe all of the above. We knew that Bernie Sanders looked like he was going to do, well, that he was going to win, not just do well, in Nevada. And turns out that he really crushed the rest of the field in the Nevada caucuses. This is quite a moment, my friends, because the way the Democrats have set up the primary, if you get more than 15 percent, there are certain provisions that trigger with regard to delegates. There's a proportional delegate allotment along the way. And because of that, unless something really unexpected happens, unless Bloomberg just swoops in to save the Democratic Party from socialism, and who knows if Minnie Mike is going to be able to pull that one off, it is looking like Bernie Sanders is going to be the next Democrat presidential nominee. Stunning stuff. Not entirely surprising, given the way the Democratic Party has been trending for the last decade or so. Some of you would probably say, Buck, for the last 100 years, but certainly for the last 10 years or so, the party has gone hard left. There's an increasingly desperate for relevance Democrat corporate media that also panders to the base, to the ideological hardcore of the Democratic Party, which is far left which is increasingly dominated by socialists. And so that's what's brought us to our current moment in time here. That's what's actually brought us to this point where Bernie Sanders looks like he may very well be the Democrat nominee. Let's just take a step back for one second. We have been lectured, those of us who are Trump supporters, we have been lectured for the last three plus years about how what's really needed in this country is a president that will restore norms, that will take us back to saner times, who respects the sacred institutions of our government. That's been a, a key talking point from the left, from the Democrats, all the above. And if you didn't go along with that, it was, why are you undermining our democracy? Why can't you see the threat that Trump poses to the norms, a much abused word, to the norms in this country. And those same Democrats now are putting forward a socialist who finds things to praise in Fidel Castro's Cuba and in the Soviet Union. So they lecture us about somebody who respects norms and institutions of government, and they put forward a radical. A radical whose greatest enemies are history and math. And there's this series now of late attacks from Democrat media showing that Bernie Sanders said some really wacko stuff back in the day. And I don't think that that should be in any way disqualified because they're showing clips not from when he was 
18 or even 25, clips from his 30s, his 40s, his 50s, and they're all consistent. Bernie has an affinity for commies. Bernie has an affinity for people who are willing to use pure authoritarianism to enact policies that he thinks create social justice. How far down that pathway would he be willing to go? Well, the truth, my friends, is something that you have to keep in mind. We won't know that until he's in power. Because we also did not know that about Castro. We did not know that about Stalin. We did not know that about Mao. We did not know that about Pol Pot. You go down the list of true authoritarians, and they always start out talking about how they're going to bring prosperity to people. They're going to have a government that takes care of the good people. Usually they create enemies inside and outside the state. Often leads to mass violence, extermination, genocide. But they do promise to do some good things. Oh, yes. Even the worst the worst in history will tell you that they want to, uh, I mean, the Nazis had a war on cancer, for example. The Nazis believe very much in state health care for some people. They believe in extermination for others, as we know. But the state was unbound by individual rights. The state was unbound by a constitution like our own rooted in natural law, rooted in a creator above the government apparatus, God above the state. Does Bernie Sanders believe that God is above the state or the state is above God? Maybe somebody should ask him that question. He was asked some questions over the weekend by uh, Anderson Cooper, who does 60 Minutes as well as CNN, because we really need to have Anderson Cooper asking all the questions. I, I don't know. It's, it's amazing the brands that these, these uh, individuals have created based on nothing that impresses me. Uh, but Bernie Sanders was asked specifically about praise that he had had for Fidel Castro. And here is what Bernie Sanders said. Play clip eight. This was last night. We're very opposed to the authoritarian nature of Cuba. But, you know, you got, it's unfair to simply say everything is bad. You know, when Fidel Castro came into office, you know what he did? He had a massive literacy program. Is that a bad thing? Even though Fidel Castro did it? There's a lot of dissidents imprisoned in, in Cuba. That's right. And we condemn that. Unlike Donald Trump, let's be clear, you want to, I do not think that Kim Jong-un is a good friend. I don't trade love letters with a murdering dictator. Vladimir Putin, not a great friend of mine. We'll get into whether Putin is a friend of Bernie Sanders or not later, because there's this Russia scaremongering going on again, and now Bernie Sanders has been dragged into it. But notice how... He talks about the way the president speaks of Kim Jong-un. The president has also threatened to annihilate Kim Jong-un. The president has kept in place the strongest sanctions regime against North Korea ever. He's tried to use the personality cult of Kim in order to stop the most likely place in the world for a nuclear war. So, yes, he's taken a risk, and so far that risk has not worked out. But it's a small risk because the rest of the policy is, North Korea, you do one thing wrong, and you will suffer more severe consequences than you ever have since the Korean War. That's what, that's what Donald Trump offers. But Bernie Sanders goes right to praising the literacy program. The literacy program? I'm just waiting for him to say that doctors in Cuba will treat you for free. Um, yes, if you can get in to see them. But you know what happens in the Cuban state? The same Cuban state that, for example, will talk about its literacy program and its, and its health care program. Um, 
this happens. This is a dispatch from the Inter-American Human Rights Commission, 1967, the 7th of April. Just like you to know, Bernie Sanders takes his time to praise still things that have happened in Cuba on a government level, the government policies of Cuba. Here's what happens in Cuba as well. 166 Cubans, civilians and members of the military were executed and submitted to medical procedures of blood extraction of an average of seven pints, pints per person. This blood is sold to communist Vietnam at a rate of $50 per pint with the dual purpose of obtaining hard currency and contributing to the Viet Cong communist aggression. A pint of blood is equivalent to half a liter. Extracting this amount of blood from a person sentenced to death produces cerebral anemia and a state of unconsciousness and paralysis. Once the blood is extracted, the person is taken by two militiamen on a stretcher to the location where the execution takes place. Bernie Sanders doesn't mind that Cuba is a country where if you have the wrong politics, if you believe in individual rights and property and God and the church and justice... If you believe in those things, they may engage in state-sanctioned, not just mass execution, but state-sanctioned blood harvesting and sell it to other commies. I'll never forget being told by a friend of mine, a dear friend of mine, a mentor of mine who was at the Bay of Pigs, who fought on our side and who was captured by the bad guys, about how after they fought and fought until they ran out of ammunition— and then had to surrender because JFK did not have the character or the gall to do what was necessary. After they surrendered, they were herded into shipping containers, including my dear friend. And he heard them. He's a fluent Spanish speaker. He heard them say as they were sealing up that shipping container, one junior, junior officer said to a more senior officer, but, sir, many of them will slowly cook and suffocate to death in there. There's no ventilation. This is in Cuba. It's a shipping container. They stuffed a, he said it felt like over 100 people into one of them. And the guy said, good, the slower the better. And they shut the door. And about half the people in the shipping container died. That's Cuba. Now, Bernie Sanders takes the time to tell you that Cuba does some good stuff. I want to know what's the cost that he's willing to pay to do, quote, some good stuff. What's he willing to do in this country? Who is he willing to bankrupt? Who's he willing to throw in prison? Who's he willing to dispossess? This is a man of mediocre intelligence at best, who has been a politician in a state that, quite honestly, in terms of population and political importance, could be a medium-sized suburb of a major of a major city, one suburb, and we're supposed to listen to him about how to dramatically reorganize the U.S. economy? My friends, we are not at, at DEFCON 1 or 2 here in American politics, but this is starting to approach socialism DEFCON 3. This is not good. We've got a real problem here. Now, I have been saying to you that I want America to have this choice, but I also believe if Bernie Sanders is the nominee, it is absolutely essential that we do everything we can to make sure that the information about socialism and what it really is and what Bernie Sanders really stands for is out there. 
because the media, you're going to see this now because they're absolutely disgusting, self-important, dishonest hacks. MSNBC, CNN, Washington Post, New York Times, go down the list. Go down the list. They don't protect your freedoms. They don't protect your dignity. They protect themselves, their power, their privileges, their money. That's all they care about. They're going to do everything that they can, everything that they can, once it's clear Sanders is the nominee, to pretend that he's just some cuddly Ben and Jerry's eating guy from Vermont who wants to bring about, you know, Denmark in America where everyone's healthy and rides around on bicycles and has everything that they need. It's a lie. He's lying to you. There are fundamental lies at the heart of Bernie Sanders' appeal. And there's a rejection of history and an understanding of the atrocities of socialist regimes. Why do socialist regimes turn into authoritarian uh, authoritarian states? Why? There are reasons for this. There There are root causes to this. It's not an accident. Bernie Sanders tries to wave his hand and yell and talk about rich people, and it's all a deflection. He is selling a fundamentally rotten political system that debases human beings, that empowers the state at the expense of the individual and the expense of the individual's natural rights. And he's doing so with a smile and the assistance of leftists who are either radicals or ignoramuses and a media apparatus that just wants anything other than Trump. So we are in a dangerous time now, my friends. We are entering a period of American politics that we have not seen before in at least 50 years. In some ways, perhaps even worse than what was going on in the 60s. We'll break down some more about Bernie Sanders because we have to look at the specifics here. You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. I think what I learned, one of the things that I, I, I think I learned on my trip, you know, as, as a socialist, the word socialism does not frighten me. And I think it's probably fair to say that the Nicaraguan government is primarily a socialist. Doesn't frighten him. Friend of the friend of the Sandinistas. Go back and read a bit about how the Sandinistas conducted their business. How Castro conducted his business. Where is the great socialist revolution that did not end in blood and misery and despair? Oh, he'll point to Europe. He'll point to societies. Uh, he'll point to industrialized societies in Europe and say, but look at what they do. And I'll say, right, they have laws that protect the rights of property in the individual. They have, in many ways, depends on which country we're talking about. If you're looking at Denmark, if you're looking at Sweden, they have more pro-business policies in place than even the United States does when it comes to regulation, when it comes to free market capitalism. But also they have a promise that has been made to the people of those countries with an honest price tag attached to it. This is this is the clear difference. In Sweden, people have no choice. If you want to be a Swede, you're going to pay roughly 60% of whatever you earn to the government. Now, this is massively inefficient, and it creates effectively a state of comfortable mediocrity for most Swedes, let's be honest. But at least there's truth in how they try to pay for this. And by the way, over the long term, they can't. They can't even sustain what they have. Talk to some. I've talked to Swedes about this, and they'll tell you that between some of the immigration issues that they've been going through, uh, the the Swedish state, the re, it's been deregulating in recent years, not becoming more regulatory in its approach to business and taxation. Uh, keep in mind that these massive welfare states that have been created, the people that set them in place 
are now the beneficiaries, beneficiaries of it, and the price tag is being heaped upon the young. It's true in this country. It's true in Europe as well. And you also have to ask Bernie Sanders, well, do, do we want to be Sweden? I, I thought we were America. So just pointing to what they do over there all the time and saying, look at look at that. We'll be fine here because we'll do it that way, too. Are we really going to do it that way? I've been telling you, Bernie Sanders offers you Venezuela because it's social justice based socialism. It takes into account the intersectional beliefs of the left that there are oppressed classes and there are oppressors. And even if your class was just historically an oppressor, that has to be made right now at your expense. There will be people in charge. There will be people empowered in the government apparatus to decide who shall be elevated and who shall be suppressed. It's going to be entirely in their hands. By the way, the earliest, uh, the earliest socialists in the Soviet Union called themselves social democrats. Do not forget that. That was their promise. And Tsar Nicholas II was an, an inept buffoon. And the Russian state was this enormous corrupt Behemoth. And they, there were efforts early on to create a constitutional monarchy. It didn't really, it was really a constitutional autocracy. It didn't work out that well. But there was real reason for people to be upset. The initial push was by was for social Democrats to come to power who were going to do all of the things that that socialists promise throughout history and have for the last hundred or so years. They're going to make everything better for you. Bernie Sanders is building a has built a political coalition and is building a presidential candidacy that has to be not just taken seriously, but now has to be confronted based upon lies. His promise that you will pay less for your health care, for example, than you do right now when the government is in charge of your health care and it will be anywhere near as good what you're used to. That's a lie. And everybody who knows anything knows it's a lie. Thanks for listening to the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's not run by the government. Medicare allows you to go to any doctor you want. For better or worse, this is not socialized medicine. This is keeping the same system intact, but getting rid of the private insurance companies, giving people another card, which allows them complete freedom. Complete freedom, he's promising you. What you're going to get is unfreedom in your health care. Because the government is not going to be able to afford the expansion of a system that is already not affordable. Not only is the system going to be expanded with Medicare for all in terms of how many people are in it. Remember, there are some basic things in life. Somebody should really sit down with Bernie Sanders, Ron Swanson style, and explain capitalism. Hey, here I am. I spent a couple of hours gathering a bunch of apples. I have X amount of apples. Would you like to give me a, a currency, a, a medium of exchange, something to make my worth, um, or rather make my time worthwhile? Would you like to do that? Would you like to engage in this basic transaction? Oh, you would? Okay, cool. Oh, no, you want 100 apples? I only have 50. And you have to go to the next town in order to get a, a few apples from somebody else. Well, that's why the price is what it is, because he's going to charge you X. I'm going to charge you Y. But I'm convenient for you. I'm right here. These, these very basic concepts. I know it sounds like this is capitalism for a third grader. But that's what Bernie Sanders pretends does not exist. The healthcare system in this country is comprised of, I'm talking about at the delivery level, is comprised of people who have spent their time learning skills doctors, nurses, nurse practitioners, physician assistants, etc., learning how to do something 
and then being compensated for those skills in the market. Now, we have a hyper-regulated healthcare market, and we have all these insurance companies that are constantly trying to find ways to move around what should be moving around risk, but it's really just redistributing money to different pools based on politics, based on what the political winds are determining at any point in time. The biggest of all, by the way, is the transfer of wealth from younger people to old people, as we see through Medicare. That's the, that's the single biggest wealth transfer that's going on. People don't like to hear that. It's reality. It's the truth. Medicare beneficiaries, on average, that means a lot of them take out more, twice what they pay into Medicare over the course of their life. Well, that's a great system, isn't it? This is, that sounds like a Ponzi scheme, doesn't it? How can that continue on? Well, Bernie Sanders pretends that the healthcare system is not people who could do other things. Doctors could decide, hey, I'm, I'm going to be, uh, you know, I'm going to be a school teacher or I'm going to open a, a dry cleaning business or whatever. They could do other things, but doctors want to do this and also want to be compensated. Same with nurses and the rest of the people in the healthcare system. Well, guess what? If they're not paid enough for their time, for the patients that they see, they can't pay their rent. They can't pay their medical school outstanding debts. They can't keep the office open. They can't pay for the usually very gruff and rude ladies, at least in New York City, who are at the front desk of pretty much every medical practice in the city who somehow are just always in a bad mood. I'm just saying. I don't know what it is here in New York, but that's what you deal with. Sometimes it's dudes. Usually it's ladies, but either or. Not very nice usually at the front desk of a medical office. It's probably because they deal with annoyed people who can't get in to see the doctor, who don't understand their, the billing practices of the insurance company, and who are constantly frustrated and who are doing way too much paperwork. But that's the system as we have right now. So what Bernie Sanders is telling you is, oh, I'm going to give you this government card that's going to say, no, no, you just show up and you give this to that grumpy front desk lady or man, and, and the doctor will take care of everything for you. Everything will be taken care of. And you say, oh, wow, that's, that, sounds like a, that sounds like a really a really great system, doesn't it? And now everyone's going to want to go to similar doctors usually, right? People are going to want to go see the best doctors they can. Um, what happens when all of a sudden people are overusing these systems? And by that, I mean what happens when there are too many people that are trying to access doctors in certain areas and aren't making cost-based decisions because the cost doesn't matter anymore. Now, some people argue this and they say, no one goes to see a doctor unless, unless they need to. Really? I've had, I've had the flu before and I've thought, do I want to go to the doctor and spend 150 bucks to be told I've got the flu? No. But maybe personal anecdotes aren't the most precise. Yeah, I'll admit that. The libs won't admit that. But so they're going to tell you, you go to the doctor, you're going to give them a card. Okay. Um, the government currently doesn't pay enough under Medicaid uh, under Medicare, rather, for most doctors to want to take Medicare. They take Medicare. Hospitals, for example, take Medicare, and then they gouge everybody in the private system in order to make up for the low cost of the services provided, the low reimbursement uh, rates for Medicare. So you go in to see the doctor, you give them your Medicare card, and and, med and the government says, okay, we'll, we'll give that doctor 100 bucks." But the doctor says, look, my cost for the time, for being here, for the, the market cost of this uh, this visit or these procedures that I'm going to do is double that, or you know, let's say it's 50% more. So now we're going to say, okay, well, the government's going to come in and give everybody the right to go in and demand, because the government says so with a card, hey, you're going to give me services, and it's going to be 50% less than what you need to actually cover the market cost of this. How, how is that going to work? You're gonna, they're going to lose money but make it up on volume? I mean, that's really what Bernie Sanders is promising you. 
And then once you add strains to the system of he's going to want to give health care to illegal aliens, they're going to get the special government card. Everyone's going to get this Medicare for all card. This will be catastrophically expensive. And by the way, the, the biggest uh, the biggest expenses in someone's life for their health care tend to be at, at end of life. Now, does everybody at end of life, you know, this is what Michael Bloomberg brought up, and it sounded really mean. It reminds people of the Sarah Palin death panels, right? She talked about that. Okay, well, here's the reality of, of pretending there won't be government death panels, which is what we've been told by libs who push government health care on us. So in a 90, as, as Bloomberg brought up, and of course, he's Bloomberg's, it was like, you know, I don't care about poor people and fine. But, you know, he says it was a 95-year-old guy has prostate cancer and he wants... Uh, he wants, let's say, one of these. There are treatments out there that cost half a million to up to two million dollars that are specifically genetic en- genetically engineered for an individual to try to beat cancer. Does every 95 year old who has uh, stage four cancer get to have the government pay for that procedure? Well, what do you think the cost of that's going to be? And then, by the way, why not do it? Meaning if you're if you're that person and, you know, and may- you know, maybe you only got a, a few years left or maybe you only got a few months left if you don't do the procedure. The government's going to pay for it. Yeah, sure. You know, do that. You start to get to this point where you say, well, how do you keep cost? What will keep costs down in a system that's already on track to bankrupt us? This is math. This is reality. Bernie Sanders completely negates all of this. He says you're going to pay more in taxes, but you're going to save money. This is the this is the promise that he keeps making. But he doesn't know how much it's even going to cost. So how could he? How could he actually know whether or not he'll be able to pay for it? The answer is, of course, he doesn't. Play clip 11, producer Mark. This is this is Bernie Sanders telling you just that. How much will that cost? Obviously, those are expensive propositions, but we have done our best on issue after issue uh, in paying for them. Do you know how all, how much, though? I mean, do you have a price tag for, for all this? We do. I mean, you know, and, and uh, the, the price tag is... It will be substantially less than letting the current system go. I think it's about thirty trillion. That's just for Medicare for all. Just, just for Medicare for all. Do you have a, a price tag for all of these things? No, I don't. We try to. No, you mentioned making public colleges and universities tuition free and canceling all student debt. That's correct. That's what I want to do. We pay for that through a modest tax on Wall Street speculation. But you say you don't know what the total price is, but you know how it's going to be paid for. How do you know it's going to be paid for if you don't know how much the price well, is? I can't. You know, I can't rattle off you every nickel and every dime but we have accounted for you you talked about medicare for all we have options out there that will pay for it yeah just you know options he says that will pay for it i mean the government is spend the federal budget is over three trillion dollars a year as it is approaching four trillion dollars the most honest assessments of what bernie sanders proposals will cost range is somewhere around around 80 to 90 trillion dollars of additional spending over the next 10 years you will be working for the government whatever you do whatever profession you are in your paychecks will be going to the government and only the government for two-thirds of the year that will become your reality now how do you get ahead how do you build wealth how do you choose your own future your own destiny when the government's taking 60 percent of every dollar you make and 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 to make this math even begin to work it'll have to be not not 60 percent of the millionaires and the billionaires it'll be 60 percent of people making sixty thousand dollars a year making forty thousand dollars a year that's the only way the math can work because there are a lot more of those people 
than there are people that are making a billion dollars a year. There aren't that many billionaires, and they don't have that much money. Despite what Bernie Sanders says, when you're talking about national policy for 320 million people, 330 million people, I think, now is a better estimate of it. What Bernie Sanders is proposing, if he could get it through, and keep in mind he is planning to do much of this via executive order, what, and, and what if Bernie Sanders decides that he's just going to veto everything until we go along? What if what if he's willing to shut the government down in order to get the government to be twice the size? You know, you don't know. This guy's nuts. Nobody really understands what he's willing to do. But we do understand that he knows nothing about how the healthcare system works. He knows nothing about this. This couldn't even be done in his home state of Vermont, which if you were trying to create a little socialist commune within America, Vermont would be a pretty good start. Couldn't even get this done the way that he wanted to there. Why? Too expensive. California can't do this. Why? Too expensive. Where does the money come from? It can't just be everybody gets all the health care spending they want all the time and someone else pays for it because there's not that someone else. I mean, this, this is a, a lesson that you would think we would have learned over the last 100 years of this. But no, we do not. We do not learn it. Um, and those who, are, those who will point to... Uh, those who will point to what's going on in other countries, we have to do a direct line comparison of, okay, what are health outcomes they're really like? How large is the private healthcare system in those countries, the separate private healthcare system? It doesn't really deal with what, they, what they're saying right now, Bernie Sanders supporters are promising, which is we're all going to be on the same system. That's not true. The private health system will, will become very large, unless they outlaw that, you know, at mandate you can't, you have to be in this government system. And then they then you are in a Cuba situation. I mean, then the whole thing does collapse. But the rich Bernie Sanders with his three houses, uh, they're not going to when, when things get really tough, they're not going to wait six months to see a specialist, which is what you have to do in Canada. They're not going to be told, sorry, no cancer drugs for you, even though you're, you know, in your early 60s, because, you know, we're just going to try the basic chemo. If it doesn't work, you're on your own hospice care which is what they do in the UK, right? I mean, you look at this and we see how this experiment plays out. And I don't want that here. If people understood what the real costs were, I think that they would flee Sanders in droves. There are some Democrats who recognize how insane this whole thing is. That's somewhat reassuring, but also terrifying that they let it get to this point. You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Is America great? In many ways, we are. In some ways, very significant ways, we're not. We're not great when half of our people today are living paycheck to paycheck. When 500,000 people tonight are going to be sleeping out on the streets, including 30,000 veterans. Yeah, we're not so great. Hmm. That's that's who the libs want to elevate as the next president of the United States. It, it does have some... Some connection to Obamaism, which was the elevation of the liberal mentality and sense of self-importance over America. Like if you're a lib who wants to transform America, you're better than the rest of America. It was a it was a campaign. It's really a political ideology built on on inherent virtue signaling. Right. When you when you sign on for Sandersism or Obamaism, you're saying, yeah, there's some nice stuff about America, but we know how to make this place really awesome because it's not it's not so awesome now this is where people say but what about what about trump and make america great again no what trump was saying what trump's rise was all about was we were pushing away the things that had made this country great because it is so great it's an opposition 
to the transformationalists, if you will, of Sanders and Obama and others. Trump is saying, no, 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 we, we, don't, we don't have to think of ourselves as not such a great country that has to go around the world bowing, apologizing. We're so sorry about this. We're so sorry about that. Let's hear from countries that shouldn't even really have a seat at the table to discuss major issues with us. But, you know, I mean, if, if Libya is going to be on the Human Rights Council, you know, got to sit down and have a chat with them. It's a different approach that Trump has from these, uh, from these other politicians. And it's a different America as a result of it right now. It certainly feels different. Although there's this, this make-believe world that lives inherent that things are going so badly in this country. What's, what exactly is going so badly? The terrible economy, the high unemployment, the, the terrorist attacks that seem like we just can't stop, that keep happening and happening and happening. The mass casualties uh, or the casualties that are, that are amassed in wars abroad that are currently not happening. We take some casualties here and there, but hopefully they'll be down to zero in Trump's second term. It's a tiny fraction of what the casualties were, for example, in Afghanistan under Obama. What is the terrible thing that we're all supposed to be so worried about now when it comes to this president? They never have an answer. It's, this, is a, this is delusional. They don't really, oh, he, he's a white nationalist. I mean, they, they just throw out these personal smears. He's not a white nationalist, and to say so is reckless and stupid. And no one who knows the president thinks he's a white nationalist, and none of his policies can be accurately, in good faith, described as white nationalist policies. It's just all, it's all lies. And the, the great irony, uh, great irony of all here is that they're always accusing Trump of being the big liar. Um, also, what, what makes us think that Bernie Sanders would even be good at any of this? I mean, maybe that's the saving grace if he were to become the next president of the United States is that he's so inept. He's not a talented administrator. He's not a, he's not a talented executive. I mean, the biggest thing he's ever run is the town of Vermont, uh, Burlington, which, while is kind of a fun place to hang out for a day, I will tell you, uh, I think it has like less than 100,000 residents. It's not a very big place. So he's a small town leader, Mayor Pete, small town mayor, Bernie Sanders, small town mayor. You know, it's, it's as though some like the college, uh, the college socialists somewhere who live in some off campus house and, and have created a commune. They're, they're now saying, hey, look what we did. Let's run the country this way now. It's not going to work. It's going to be a disaster. And you can't help but feel that there is a, an underlying animus that Sanders has toward our system. And there is a sympathy that he has for systems that have been catastrophic. I mean, the Soviet Union condemned hundreds of millions of people to misery, poverty and, and servitude to the state. And Sanders seems to think, you know, yeah, but there was a lot of good stuff, too. No. That, that's, a, that's a bizarre mentality. That is his mentality. He seems to think that they were close. If only they had done a few things differently, they would have the workers' paradise, the socialist utopia that was promised. It's, it's false. It's false. Sanders is offering America a choice, and the entire choice is based on a line. If we make the wrong decision here, it's going to be very bad for this country with ramifications that go far beyond just one presidency. Thanks for listening to the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. We begin tonight with another test of America's ability to be shocked by Donald Trump, who has very deliberately shocked America to the point where he hopes that shock has been replaced by acceptance. The president is a Russian operative. 
That sounds like the description of a bad Hollywood screenplay, but it is real. And it is Vladimir Putin's greatest achievement. Decades after America's victory in the Cold War and the collapse of the Soviet Union, the president of the United States is now helping the president of Russia help the president of the United States to get reelected so that the president of Russia will have four more years of the president of the United States who he wants in the Oval Office. This is one of those shocking news days, if you retain the capacity to be shocked in the Trump era by the Trump regime, which might be better labeled the Trump-Putin regime. Okay, folks. This is really where Lawrence O'Donnell has turned into a John Nash in A Beautiful Mind, where he's got the all the papers on the wall and but with the CIA and the stuff, and it looks all... And he's clearly having an episode. I mean, the guy's having a problem. He's having a breakdown. What Lawrence O'Donnell did there on MSNBC, a cable news channel that is distributed in 100 million American homes. Parent uh, parent company is NBC. And NBC is, you know, owned by an even bigger company. I don't even know who it is anymore. And this is supposed to be mainstream cable news. That little speech he just gave there about the president of the United States is insane. I mean, he's actually crazy if he believes that. It's reckless. It's stupid. It's unsupported by any actual evidence. And yet, do you think that there will be a moment this week where Lawrence O'Donnell, the big kind of blustering bully that he is, uh, you, you think that he'll give a retraction and say, wow, I was way off on that? No, of course not. Has Rachel Maddow ever apologized to her audience for all of the Russia collusion, hyperbolics and absurdity? No. Never. Because this is an emotional and psychological need for Democrats that the president, who is better than their president was for eight years, this president that they say is a monster, a buffoon, a moron, incapable, corrupt, a liar, is beating them in every way that they can be beaten. And the only thing that they have at the end of the day is this Russia- Trump is a traitor, Trump cheated fairy tale that they tell themselves. So they can't let it go. Because if they were to let this go, then what do they have? Bernie Sanders, Mayor Pete, Joe Biden, if he can remember where he is. So we are in a dangerous place because of the rise of socialism in the Democratic Party, but also because of the denialism, the delusional Democrat left, Democrat Party overall, really. This is this is on cable news. This is not somebody who has, you know, a, a YouTube channel with 10,000 subscribers. This is on cable news. You have a multimillionaire TV news host who is calling the president a Russian asset. An agent of Russia, the Trump Putin regime. And I, I could sit here and say, um, really, because. We've been doing a lot. The president has done many things that Putin does not want him to do that are aggressive toward Russia. Some would even argue too aggressive toward Russia. And what exactly do we get in response for this? Oh, more of the same claims, more of the same absurdity. Now, this this has all come out in the last week because of what we were told was an intelligence assessment an intelligence assessment that had that that suggested to lawmakers 
who promptly scurried off and leaked this to a compliant Democrat media because they thought it would be a helpful anti-Trump narrative. But there was a briefing in which there was a discussion about whether Russia had a was interfering in the election. No, no, no gauging, no assessing of is that interference even really noteworthy? Is it important? Does it matter? Does it change anything? No, just interference. And as I've said to you, every presidential election has fraud. It's a fact. Every presidential election in this country, there's been voter fraud. But does anyone really think now sometimes if you look at Lyndon Johnson, you know, the, the voter fraud probably did change the outcome of the election. But would it be fair to say that there was a, that the last election was fraudulent and the president didn't really win because somebody voted 10 times in one voting booth somewhere and then went to prison for it? No, of course not. Right? That's absurd. It is an absurd thing to believe and to say that the Russians are so skilled at Internet manipulation of the American mind. We've got billions and billions of dollars of media uh, apparatuses that are constantly clashing and pushing narratives and and Russia just can swoop in and, and tip it to one side or the other. If our democracy is that fragile, is it even really worth calling it a democracy? It's a joke. But what the real joke is here is that people believe that that's possible. Of course, the Russians can't do that. Of course, the Russians aren't in some position to just change American minds and all of a sudden the candidate that they want. Remember, the, the horrible thing that's supposed to happen here, the thing that we're all supposed to be, oh, my gosh, the Russians are undermining our democracy, is that Donald Trump is going to be president again. Oh, no, that's so terrible. Well, they say it's terrible because he's an, a Russian agent. You see, this is all circular. And we should be worried because the Russians are intervening on behalf of Trump because the Russians want Trump to win because the Russians will then be able to continue to work with him. So they intervene on behalf of Trump. No, no none of this is real. None of this is true. This is all just fantasy land. This is all crazy. But they won't give it up. We had the Mueller special counsel. I mean, we've been through this as a country already. And I have to take a little moment here. I told you they'd come back to Russia collusion. As soon as the impeachment thing was over, I, I did say it. I think you guys got to give a little bit of credit, a little bit. All right, I'm taking a little bow here in the Freedom Hut. I've been telling you they're going to do this because I understand the insane liberal mind because I'm, I'm surrounded by it here in New York City. That's one part of it. So now we have the return of this. It's all based on this leaked assessment that was given oh that's right right before the nevada caucuses to try to mess up bernie sanders they included bernie sanders in it too that russia wants trump to win and russia wants bernie sanders to win because i've actually read the kgb archives from the matrokin archive which is a very worthwhile exercise i can tell you that russian analysis of american politics stretching back for the last hundred years but particularly in the height of the cold war when the soviet union was obsessed with understanding american intentions their understanding of American politics is pathetic. They do not understand the nuances. They do not understand what's really going on here and in, in, in any meaningful way. And that's always been the case. They, they grossly overstate because they approach it. Their, their analysts inside the Russian government approach American politics with their own vision of, well, clearly this person wants to be an authoritarian. Clearly this person wants to seize power and crush the opposition and never have any election again. I mean, this is the way that they've been assessing American politics for a long time. 
Who's going to be the great friend of Russia? And, and think about the fixation here as well that this is so important to the Russian state. We're not about to go to war with Russia. What do we really? What do the Russians really think? How much do they really gain? They don't know. And what do they lose by interfering? Well, that still remains to be seen, right? Democrats sound like they practically want to go to war over this. But who is the candidate that the Russians would most want? And this is a game I would note that the Democrats play shamelessly all the time. You know, they would say that if, if you opposed Obama on counterterrorism on anything, counterterrorism related, it's you're doing Al Qaeda's work for them. That was the line. And now if you don't trash Trump on everything, you're doing it's you're doing Putin's bidding. I mean, this is what people who are not very bright think by saying others will believe them to be bright. Right. You, all you have to do is say this thing about Putin's puppet and the Russian ass, which is why Lawrence O'Donnell does that. I think he's probably too smart to really believe that trash, but he knows that his audience likes to be told it because they've gone and told all their friends. And because they've gone and told all their friends this, they want that belief reinforced that this is what smart people say. This is what the good people say. It's a deeply stupid belief. And now the problem they have is that this briefing that launched the latest round of Russia collusion hysteria turns out that it might have been incorrect. That the person who came, uh, who was trusted in the intelligence community, look, I've, I've ran intelligence community briefings for the president in the Oval Office. I was in my late 20s. So I, I've done this before. I know exactly how this goes. Sure, there's the paper, there are the assessments, there's the highly classified information you're passing along. A lot of which, by the way, you know, a lot of classified information, you'd say that's classified, but that's a whole other conversation. It's like, it looks like a headline in the Wall Street Journal. Who cares? But. The president or the policymaker, in this case, members of Congress, can then ask questions. They ask questions. They say, okay, well, what about this? What about that? And then if you're the briefer, you're supposed to, to always defer to the internal expertise of your home agency, et cetera, et cetera. But you tend to be like, all right, I'm in here with the big dogs. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to throw them a bone. I'm going to give them an answer. And sometimes I can get you a little, little bit beyond where you want to be. Going beyond your brief, they call it. Makes sense, right? And... That seems to be what happened here. So now they had, to, they had to try to walk this back. The leak to the press that the press breathlessly reported on, which then turned into Russia's interfering in the election because they want to help Donald Trump, turned into, well, Russia's interfering. We don't know how much, and we don't know that they want to support Trump. We just know that Trump's probably someone they think they can work with. That was the big, the actual takeaway. And to this, I'd want to ask, they think they can work with Trump more than they could work with some wimpy novice left-wing Democrat? Really? They let, let's let's unpack this one for a second. They think they could work. They think the Russians think they could work with Trump more easily than they could work with uh, peacenik, commie-loving Bernie Sanders, who timed his honeymoon with a pre-scheduled trip to the Soviet Union, came back and said, actually said that you know the bread lines weren't so bad because at least people were getting bread. Unlike starving, like they do in other countries. Really, there are a lot of countries where there are no breadlines and people aren't starving, turns out. But that didn't stop Bernie Sanders from saying that, and he has not even repudiated any of this. So the, next, the, the latest round of this Russia collusion stuff has now turned into a bunch of pundits and media outlets that were running on a falsehood, but you could see... It, it triggers right away that part in their brain that goes, oh, yes, here we go. 
Russia, Trump, oh, all this stuff, all of our fears about a Trump re-election, perhaps this will deliver us from that. And this also excuses the Dems, the libs, for the socialists for being so wrong about Trump for so many years now and lying to their audiences and misrepresenting what's really happening in this country to their audiences. And then they pull Bernie Sanders into this, too. Does anyone notice this? Of course, you notice this, but I mean that rhetorically. Is anyone noticing how it is now the the default position of the political and media establishment that if you are outside the establishment and a threat to their power structure, you're a Russian agent, including Bernie Sanders, which I have to say is uh, just just goes to show you that the Democrats are willing to do whatever they have to do. The ones in power will do whatever they have to do to stay in power, including they'll they'll eat their own. I mean, they'll go after their own side on this. Uh, here's James Carville, who is doing the whole I'm going to war game this out from inside Putin's mind. James Carville is a, you know reasonably entertaining left-wing commentator, Democrat commentator. He's more of an old-school Democrat than a left-winger. Um, but he, he does not know anything about the Kremlin or Russia. Play play two. The happiest person right now is about 1.15 Moscow time. This thing is going very well for Vladimir Putin. I promise you. He, 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 he's probably staying up watching us right now. How you doing, Vlad? That's absolutely right. And James, there's reporting that that's exactly what the intelligence agencies think is going on. I mean, the Sanders campaign was briefed that Putin um, is helping him and plans to help him in the primary. Amazing. And I don't think Sanders wants Putin to help. The only reason, think, why would Vladimir Putin be helping Bernie Sanders? Of course, because he wants Donald Trump to win. Oh, so there we go. He wants Donald Trump to win. What? He's going to help Sanders because Carville is so sure that Trump will beat Sanders, even though I remember 2016 when everybody was so sure, except for a lot of people in this audience, everybody was so sure that Hillary was going to beat Trump. So so the Russians are making these picks based on a certainty that there's no way they could have because even the people following this most closely in this country don't have it. They're assuming omniscience. It's absurd. They're assuming omniscience of the other side because it plays into what they want to believe. I mean, our political pundit class is just covering itself in dishonor, and, and people shouldn't tr- shouldn't listen to them, shouldn't trust them anymore. You should just trust individuals that you have a record, you have a history with, that you know what they believe, you know what they have stood for, and they also enforce some degree of, of self-accountability. The Democratic establishment has learned nothing in the last three years. They changed nothing. And now they're afraid of Sanders as if they didn't see Sanders coming. What do they think happened in 2016? But, oh, that's right. Putin now will help Sanders as if he really could help Sanders. He's going to help Sanders because Putin's so sure that Trump will beat Sanders because Putin's so sure that Trump is a better person for for him to work with as the president of the United States. These are all massive assumptions. This is flimsy analysis. The entire mainstream media is running around parroting this crap. They're they're a joke, but it's a very unfunny joke. You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. I think we should be very clear that what when we say Russia is helping Bernie Sanders, what does that mean? Yes. They are not trying to help Bernie Sanders be president. They are trying to give Trump the opponent that Trump wants. They helped Bernie Sanders in 2016 to divide the Democratic Party. 
See, this is easier for them. There are a lot of people running around saying this on TV. This this is now the narrative that's being spreaded in the left uh, wing of American politics. The Democratic Party elites are running around saying, oh, Sanders is Putin's choice because this has become a reflexive thing. We don't like Trump, so Trump must be Putin's choice. We don't like Sanders, so Sanders must be Putin's choice. As if Putin is Putin is running a country with an economy that's like a it's like a maybe a couple trillion dollars a year total. I mean, Russia is not is not squaring off against us as some behemoth that we have to be worried. I mean, the one that we have to be worried about is China, but which Trump understands. But this whole this creation of Russia as as a, a country that we have to be constantly worried about. Russia doesn't matter that much, crazy libs. Stop being so crazy. Putin is not determining the president of the United States. I mean, this is, it's, it's a real mass psychosis that's going on. You know, it reminds me, people always bring up the Salem witch trials. They forget that there are periods in medieval history where there would be these, these, uh, these mass psychoses about witches and there would be there were witch burnings and it would happen and they would burn you know large numbers of women who were you know childless and didn't have husbands and they'd find you know they're on the outskirts of society and they would burn them because everyone got all freaked out about these people are witches of course which was crazy and not true but everyone gets all worked up about it oh they get all scared Whew, man these democrats this this russia stuff it, it's amazing i, I I do not believe that it is possible to be intelligent and have good judgment and still think that Putin is a determining factor in U.S. elections at this point. I don't think it's possible, which means there are a lot of people that we're supposed to think are really smart that I'm telling you are just not very smart. That's a real that's a real thing, too, which the establishment hates that recognition. Thanks for listening to the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, look, I, what I've heard from the FBI, you know, well, what I've heard is that, uh, that Russia would like Bernie Sanders to to win the Democrat nomination. They'd probably like him to be president, uh, understandably, because he wants to, to spend money on social programs and probably would have to take it out of the military. So that would make sense. Uh, and, and look, the Russians have always tried to interfere with elections because they want to divide Americans. They want to undermine our democracy. But the idea that they want to they want to influence the election and somehow cause the president to win, I just don't see it. That last point that he made, I don't really get into the, you know, who do they want more, Bernie or Trump? I mean, I think quite clearly the Russians would be better off from their perspective having an inept socialist buffoon as the president of the United States, who's also, you know, very opposed to military spending. I mean, that's all real. But, you know, we're not the Russians. We don't know. You know, maybe Putin just likes that Trump is such a, a manly man. By the way, do we have a just as, as a quick as a quick digression here? President Trump is in India right now. And he's uh, taken the podium with uh, uh, Prime Minister Modi, and there are over 100,000 people. By the way, the polls show that Indians like Trump as much as they liked Obama. So, you know, the Indian people, majority, clear majority of them like Trump. That's a country of a billion people. I thought everyone hated Trump. I thought the whole world hates Trump. Well, India likes him just as much as Obama. And Obama was supposed to be the president the whole world was in love with, right? So, oh, you mean that, you know, European states that have no small bit of, of envy about America, by the way, you know, they don't like Trump's brashness and they prefer the more internationalist approach of Obama? Great. Who cares? Do we have the, uh, they're playing Macho Man? Is that, no, no, we don't have, okay. Well, they were playing Macho Man when he went into the stadium because I want to be, 
a macho man. This was in India. Which I thought it was pretty funny. 100,000-plus Indians cheering, screaming, and uh, you know, shouting praise for the president of the United States. It's pretty awesome to see. India is a country, by the way, we should be just a, we should be getting closer to. It's a multi-confessional democracy, you know, economy that's going to become just increasingly a, a major engine of growth for the whole world. Uh, you know, India is a country that America should should be holding close to its bosom and, and making a good buddy of in every way that we can. Um, you know, there was a problem there for a long time because of a Cold War rivalry, speaking of Russia and the Soviet Union, and India had gone in the socialist camp for a while. And that was a problem for us. And so we also worked with Pakistan because of the Soviets in Afghanistan. And so we had this whole Pakistan-India divide. And we're still working through some of the bad the bad feeling that existed there. Uh, but we should be very close allies with India. Anyway, back, back to the uh, realities here of the Russia collusion absurdity. The Democrats have, if you're going to talk about being Putin's puppet, there is nothing that could be more clear evidence of this as a successful information operation than the amount of chaos and energy and time and media focus on interfering in our election, because that now has created this whole, tens of millions of Americans feel like Putin can just alter our elections on a whim, which does undermine confidence in them. But they only believe that because the Democrat media is so such a bunch of sore losers because Hillary lost that they're willing to play along with this. Putin is able to pay a few guys in a basement. I mean, think about what we're really talking about here. Paying, you know, a few dozen people on the Internet to create memes. I have friends who are American who all they do all day long is try to create, you know, political memes and try to do commentary. And it is one of the hardest businesses in the world to be in. It's really challenging. There's a lot of competition. You think a couple of dudes named, you know, Oleg, Sergey, and... Ivan sitting in a basement in Moscow are going to be able to, you know, unlock the magic key to, to change perception in a few key states. I mean, just think about what they're suggesting here. It, it just it defies any logic. It defies any real uh, analysis. But this is this is where we are. Um, and it's it's troubling to see just how much the, the left is willing to buy into all of this and and. Uh, and go for this. By the way, just a couple of words from a president. We have this from President Trump in, in India. Here, play uh, play 22. So today I say to every Indian, North and South, Hindu and Muslim, Jewish and Christian, rich and poor, young and old, take pride in the glories of your past. Unite for an even brighter future and let our two nations always stand together as powerful defenders of peace and liberty and the hope of a better world for all of humanity. Thank you again, Prime Minister Modi for your hospitality, and thank you, India, for this phenomenal welcome. I want to just leave by saying, God bless India. God bless the United States of America. We love you. We love you, India, very much. Thank you. Thank you. Do you think that any of the president's critics who call him a racist and a white nationalist and all these other horrible and untrue things... Do they even listen to what he says? I, I think they don't. A white nationalist president would not give, would not choose to give speeches like the ones that President Trump gives on a regular basis. President Trump wants people to do well all over the world, but first and foremost here in America. 
You know, he wants the best for humanity. He wants the best for the American people, though, because that is his job. But for all Americans of all backgrounds, all ethnicities, all colors, he, he repeats this over and over. His policies reflect this. But because they refuse to agree that America, America is the only country that's not allowed to have sovereign borders, according to the left. You can't just show up in India and be like, yeah, I want to be here. Why wouldn't you let me in? Why is India being so racist? I want, I want to be in India. I'm just showing up. I don't have a visa and I, I have no right to stay. I'm, I'm illegal in your country. Why? Every other country in the world is allowed to say, no, no, sorry. You, you, you actually have to obey our laws when it comes to entry. But if President Trump says you have to do that, that's racist. This is the position of the left now. This is why the left is insane. Uh, but the president gives speeches like this and he does try to, I think he does try to inspire people. You know, and there is something about this president in particular, his his tenacity, his endurance and his belief in self is infectious. It is something that no matter where you are, no matter what country you're from, when you see this president, if you are just even a little bit familiar with who he is and what his story is. There is something inspirational about the guy for all for all of his flaws and you know all the all the drawbacks, which I'm also very aware of. You look at this guy and just say, what a force of nature he is. And also to see somebody who's that successful and that powerful, who uh, doesn't feel the need to constantly either talk down to people or engage in a false humility, it's refreshing. You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. sad thing going on with respect to Roger Stone. You have a juror that's obviously tainted. He was an activist against Trump, said bad things about Trump and said bad things about Stone. And she somehow wheedled her way onto the jury. And if that's not a tainted jury, then there is no such thing as a tainted jury. I think it's a disgrace. And I could say plenty more about that whole situation, but I'll hold it. I don't know why they gave a judgment why the judge ruled prior to ruling on that, because in theory, you should rule on that, and then you see what happens. But the judge gave a sentence without discussing that, and I guess he's going to bring that up at a later date. But I, I do think this, that juror is so biased and so tainted that that shouldn't happen in our criminal justice system. Now, the president continues to talk about now it's a criminal case that's over and he's allowed to have his opinions on it. But he talks about this and there's been all this criticism of whether the president should be allowed to uh, speak about this. I understand why people want the president to keep talking about it, because there is there's a problem. We know there is a problem in our judicial system, in the Department of Justice, uh, where you have an entire now generation of mostly boomers and you know Gen X and Gen Y people who are in positions of authority in the government, who believe that they should be effectively be liberal activists in either judges' robes or in prosecutorial positions, that they have to even the score here a little bit for the left and use the power of the government to do so. How could you think as a judge, as this judge who just sentenced Roger Stone to what three years and four months, how could someone think that it's a fair trial when the jury foreperson based on all accounts we've seen, clearly hid that she was an anti-Trump activist and hated Roger Stone. Well, what's the point of Wadir? Why even have 
that exchange between members of the court, the judge and, and possible jury members to find out if they have preconceived notions or if they have some bias that they would bring to this. Why do that if, if in a case like this, you'll just say, well, you know, OK, fine. So one major member of the jury uh, was a lying to us about this, but, you know, no big deal. And that then just reminds me that we don't have to continue to accept there's a two-tier justice system. You're never going to get a fair trial as a Trump associate in Washington, D.C. That's that's for starters, because the jury pool there is just leftists, people that are just as getting as close to the government as they can, getting as much out of the government as they can. You're never, ever going to be able to just count on a fair trial in Washington, D.C., in a federal court if you're have anything to do with Donald Trump. And then there's also, what about the rest of the government apparatus? And that's where we get to what they're calling Trump's deep state hit list. This is from Axios. This is great. Let me read you a little bit from this one. The Trump White House and its allies over the past 18 months assembled detailed lists, assembled detailed lists of disloyal government officials to oust and trusted pro-Trump people to replace them, according to more than a dozen sources familiar with the effort who spoke to Axios. Um, in reporting the story, I have been briefed on on reviewed memo and reviewed memos and lists the president has received since 2018, suggesting whom he should hire and fire. Most of these details have never been published. Since Trump's Senate acquittal, aides say the president has crossed a psychological line regarding what he calls the deep state. He feels his government, from justice to state to defense to homeland security, is filled with snakes. He wants them fired and replaced ASAP. The libs are all completely freaking out about this. How is the president wrong? Why, why should people who are known anti-Trump activists keep their positions of power and authority inside a, an executive branch apparatus that has been already several times over weaponized against the president of the United States? I mean, you will recall that there have been administrations in the past who, when they came in, they just cleared out all the U.S. attorneys, just just cleared out a lot of you know federal uh, federal prosecutors and replace those positions, uh, replace those positions with, you know, Clinton did it, Bush did it with people that they think are, are aligned on policy. But you see, what we have here is in a time of intense polarization, there is a, a lack of belief that the other side is willing to play by fair rules and act in good faith. And when you're looking at the Department of Justice, this is the this is where government abuse is most concerning to people. Right? I mean, you could say for the average person, it's the IRS and the DOJ that when they're politicized, there's a ripple effect to the rest of government, but also they can ruin lives. They can destroy you. You know, that's a rogue elephant that will trample on you. So the president now, for going into a second term, wanting to make sure that there are people who act in good faith in these positions, I blame the deep state Dems, I blame people like Sally Yates and Brennan and Clapper and Comey and McCabe and others for putting their own sense of political sanctimoniousness and self-righteousness ahead of doing their duty for the people of the United States. They think doing their duty is to not do their jobs because they don't like Trump and try to take Trump down. That's not their duty. They can tell themselves that all night. James Comey can walk around, you know acting like he's the savior of the republic the guy's a jerk and a clown and he broke regulations of the agency that he was supposed to be setting an example for everybody else in 
And that's just all. Those are just matters of fact now. McCabe is a liar, a liar who not only uh, wouldn't tell the truth about leaking information, but went around berating subordinate employees for a leak that he did. That's psycho. That's not that's not something that a normal, well-adjusted person would do. You're going to go yell at maybe that, you know, that inferior employee at the FBI when the FBI director is yelling at you for a leak. That's scary because you can get in a lot of trouble for that. He was doing that to people. So uh, the, the people that should be blamed here for the president wanting those that he can trust in these positions are the people that abuse the power against the president because their candidate, Hillary Clinton, lost. It's their fault. And administrations going forward, I would note, are also going to take this approach. And they would be stupid not to. You want to leave a James Comey around? You want to leave a, you know, leave a snake? Leave a snake behind in your living room. See what happens. You know, let the kids go out and play and, you know, just just let that rattler just just stay around. You know, it's probably going to be OK. No, it's not. So I think the president's exactly right here. And this is where and remember, Comey said so they knew they know this too. Comey said that he could sneak those guys in because the administration was in transition and these were people that were novices to the White House and to D.C. in some cases, that he could sneak them in a transition. The White House wouldn't really know what's going on. Take advantage of the fact that they're from outside the establishment, outside the perma bureaucracy in order to, you know, get a scalp from the administration really early. They knew. They knew that's what they were doing. And now Trump has learned, OK, you, that, you guys want to play rough? That's how you want to do it? Well, I'm going to make sure that we don't have people like James Comey lingering around for term two. I mean, I can tell you this, if if President Trump truly broke the law or truly abused his power, there is not one one part of me, not 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 a, not a scintilla, nothing that makes me think that, for example, Attorney General Barr would refrain from not only calling it out, but from resigning and causing a real crisis for uh, for the administration in doing so. If the president actually broke the law and was doing something wrong, all this president is trying to do is not have people who are willing to leak and sometimes in violation of the law itself, obstruct, undermine and work against him from inside the government. The left is going to say, oh, this is him trying to be a dictator. And how could he do this? And it's not about him being a dictator. It's about having an executive branch that's aligned with who the actual legitimate president of the United States is. They can tell themselves all day that they're hashtag resistance and they don't have to play by these rules and that Donald Trump's victory doesn't count. They can do that. But that doesn't make it true and it doesn't make it right. So I, I like this. And, and I also think that the uh, the way that they're going forward here is going to mean that term two of Trump is really going to be fantastic. <laughs> That's what I heard. Term two Trump. Woo. Strap in. It's going to be good times. But we got to get there first. Eye on the prize team. I am the price. Thanks for listening to the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Well, the verdict is in on Harvey Weinstein and former Democrat donor, Democrat bundler, friend of the Clintons, friend of the Obamas, Hollywood left-wing power broker Harvey Weinstein is going to prison for a long time. This will be talked about mostly in the context of Me Too and how the Me Too movement led to a a change in attitudes about the kind of uh, predatory behavior that Harvey Weinstein 
engaged in, among others. He was found guilty on one rape count and one criminal sex act count, could go to prison for up to 29 years. He was not found guilty of the top charges that would have been possible life sentences for either of them for predatory sexual conduct. Um, so he is 67 years old and he realistically faces spending the rest of his life in prison. Um, Manhattan assistant district attorney and her co-counsel argued that Weinstein preyed on vulnerable, naive women who tried to pursue professional relationships with him to advance their careers only to be sexually attacked, according to the uh, New York Post here. Uh, Weinstein has been remanded into custody until he is sentenced, and they are going to send him away for a long time. Well, this is a, a case that I think will have ramifications for other cases like it. Uh, some of the women in this instance continued to have relationships with Harvey Weinstein after the alleged assaults took place. That's, uh, I could understand how a jury would have a, a problem with that on a beyond a reasonable doubt standard, but I think that Harvey Weinstein had, his pattern of behavior was just so grotesque that people found him to be such a hateful character that the beyond a reasonable doubt standard clearly did not uh, prevent him from having a unanimous jury verdict about uh, against him leading to possible 30 years or 29 years in prison. He, he won't get 29. And remember, these are state charges, too, so he will be eligible for parole, and I'm sure he will appeal, and there's this is not over. You'll be hearing more about Harvey Weinstein in the years ahead, but this is a, a massive, uh, a massive loss for the Weinstein defense team and for Harvey Weinstein personally, that's for sure. And a lot of people will view this, I think, as a victory for the Me Too movement. Uh, Weinstein was able to get away with a lot because of who he was, because of the connections he had. And uh, what, what, an, what an incredible fall from grace for a guy who was at the absolute pinnacle of the American power structure, particularly in the 90s and the 2000s. It was a guy who could get a movie made that he wanted to get made, put whomever he wanted in that movie, get anybody on the phone, raise the money, was very rich, very connected. And now he's going away. So take what you will from uh, you know the lessons from that in terms of the legal realities here. Um, but Harvey Weinstein, guilty and maybe going to prison for a will be going for a long time. It's a question of, of how long it is. And there's a good chance Harvey Weinstein is going to die in prison. There's a good chance he's never going to see freedom after this. So that's one news item for you. Then you also have some troubling updates on the coronavirus. And now you're up to 40,000 confirmed cases. I'm seeing a fatality rate that there are some reports of fatality rates more like three to four percent which is considerably higher if that turns out to be true than what we what we see generally with uh, influenza. And remember, the flu kills thousands of people in America every year, but it tends to be people who are older, immunocompromised, or very young, uh, which is one of the reasons why it's so important that certain people get, uh, get flu vaccinations, even though the flu vaccination, sometimes they miss the strain entirely. Uh, but now you've got Italy... In the midst of a coronavirus lockdown effort, Italy's had a number of confirmed cases, a few hundred of them, I think, now, 
and uh, about a half dozen people have died of coronavirus there. China is still the the center of this outbreak, Wuhan province in China. The head of the hospital that was treating coronavirus uh, patients died of coronavirus. So there's definitely high risks of transmission inside medical facilities that are treating this. And what they're they're still figuring a lot out about this. I'm not yet, you know, the stock market today is in a big sell off. I'm not hitting the panic button here in America over this. I mean, the Chinese should take it very seriously, and I, I think they are. Um, you know, that it's popped up in Europe now is concerning. And remember, all it takes is one person on one airplane to show up somewhere, and all of a sudden we got a very big problem. And we have to remember that. I mean, interesting that there were some, I was reading some initial. Initial reports about how we shouldn't, these supposed experts were saying we shouldn't have travel restrictions or any efforts at lockdown because of the economic consequences. Uh, I don't think that was the right move to, to, to take that approach for anyone. I think that you want to try to prevent travel and spread of this of this disease. Um, they think that, I mean, they know that it's spread through droplets in the air. So one very important uh, precaution is uh, face masks. And it's already killed more people, I believe, than SARS. So that now is ratcheting up fears about all of this. But you're you're most likely to come into uh, you're most likely to contract this from somebody if you were around them. Which, if you're in America right now, is very, 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 very unlikely. The risk is very, very low. Um, but if you were to come around someone, it's it's repeated and continuing contact. So it's people that are either caring for you or people that you share a, a home with. That's where you're most likely to spread it. They don't know how effective, and this is what will really, if they can prove this, then people are going to start hitting the panic button a little bit more. They know that it's from secretions. They aren't sure yet how, it certainly can be spread. Coronavirus can be spread through aerosolized droplets. So if someone sneezes into a room, that aerosolized, those aerosolized droplets contain virus. And so then if it gets into your eyes, nose, or mouth, that, that's the way that these respiratory infections are transmitted. You can clearly come down with, with coronavirus. And then the main problem is that it just your lungs fill with fluid, and that causes also problems. You can't really breathe. It causes problems for your liver, and you have organ shutdown or, or people um, go into respiratory failure. So it's bad. It's very bad. That's, that's for sure. Uh, if it is effectively transmitted via aerosolized drops, is something that they're still trying to figure out. And there's understandably real concerns about how honest the Chinese government is going to be in this whole process uh, about what they've learned and how widespread the infections really are. Uh, One of the very troubling histories, and this is true for SARS, MERS, Middle East Respiratory System, SARS, and and now coronavirus as well, early... uh, Early detection people that that came out and said there's a problem here. We've got something happening. Governments, whether it's Saudi Arabia, did this. Uh, I think it was Saudi Arabia. I don't think it was Dubai. I can't remember. I think it was Saudi Arabia. But when when you're the person that says, "Hey, I think we we have to worry about an outbreak here," even if you're right, these authoritarian governments take it out on you. You know, threaten you, imprison you, come after you. So that's always a reminder about what governments are like when they feel like there's a, a challenge to the power structure or someone's creating problems for them, even if it's a problem that should be dealt with. Uh, I, I'm not hitting the panic button yet. Producer Mark's not hitting the panic button yet. But if it turns out that it has a high transmission of aer- through aerosolized droplets, then we've got then we got more concerns and more things to be to be worried about. 
and they're giving, and this is true for a lot of people, you know, Tamiflu they'll give you doesn't really, it might help with some symptoms, but most doctors will tell you Tamiflu for the standard influenza uh, strains that come out isn't really all that effective. Um, the, whatever they're, I forget what it is. They, they've actually given some people HIV medication uh, to try to help with immunosuppression to deal with this virus. But this is a, your immune system and your health is really the determining factor if you're infected, uh, whether you're going to make it through or not. That there's really no, there's no drug, there's no vaccine, there's nothing that they can really give you. Uh, the, what they end up doing in some of the hospitalized circumstances, some people end up just staying at home and they beat it and they're, they're okay. But in, in hospitalized situations, they'll give you not just IV fluids, but they'll also give you um, support to your organs, you know, help you breathe, help your heart keep pumping if you're really in bad shape from from the disease. Anyway, I, I don't, you know, I don't think it's going to, well, I don't know. I mean, I was going to say, I don't think it's going to hit America. I don't know. I don't think we're there yet. But the market today is clearly in a little bit of a tailspin because of it. And uh, people are understandably concerned. I there's always going to be politics when you're talking about pandemics. That's that's the reality of a pandemic. I just think that people that sit around uh, whining and complaining about uh, climate change and how it's going to kill us all and you know how we need to recycle and how we can't use plastic bags and all this stuff, uh, I think that they need to think long and hard about what their priorities are because this is a real problem. And clearly, we don't have enough resources devoted to vaccination and treatment for upper respiratory uh, viruses like this. All this other stuff, billions and billions of dollars going to make believe problems in the scientific world because of people's delusions, because really climate change is a religious belief for people who think they're too smart for religion. Uh, and there are consequences to that. This is not consequence free. So we'll continue to look at what's going on with coronavirus here. But the Freedom Hut's here to tell you that for right now, it's I think it's all going to be OK, but Say a prayer. You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. I did see Parasite over the weekend. You know, the president had caught, uh, caught some heat. I was going to say, you know, yeah, the president had caught some heat over the, well, last week because he said, whatever happened to Gone with the Wind, why can't we have great movies like we used to? And I, look, I, I'll say this about Parasite. I, it's... The, the reason Parasite won the best picture is because there, people in the Academy were excited about two things. It's a foreign film, and it's a foreign film that deals with class warfare and is essentially some of the themes of class struggle and socialism. That, that's what the movie's about. So the execution of it is, is pretty good. I mean, I, you know, the, I'm not a fan of having—and it's a problem I'm having with Narcos, too. I mean, Narcos now is feeling a little bit like a telenovela because I'm just, I'm just reading the bottom— because it's all basically in Spanish. There's very little English language in, in Narcos these days. And so I'm just reading the, the, the bottom all the time. I feel like I'm doing prompter practice for TV news. And that's not really how I like to watch things. So the, I, I grow tired of that pretty quickly. There are some foreign language films I think are worth it for that, or worth it despite that. Um, you know, Parasite, is, it's here's what I'll tell you about it. It's too long. And I, I know that I'm a little bit out on my own on this one. Movies should be generally... 90 minutes to two hours. Two hours is really kind of the max that I want to sit through. 90 minutes is great. I mean, if you can tell the story and have it effective in 90 minutes, that's the sweet spot. That, that's really where I want things to be. Uh, this, this movie was like two hours and 20 minutes long, 
and there's no way anyone could convince me that there wasn't at least there weren't at least 30 minutes of footage that you could have just cut out and nobody would have, and it would have made it a better movie too long it drags and i think that really does matter because i value my time and we're all getting used to on demand and watching serialized content so that when we have to sit down for two hours or two and a half hours and watch a movie i mean braveheart's like three hours long but braveheart is amazing it's the greatest movie of all time and so three hours isn't enough that's very rare you know it's very rare it reminds me of how i always tell people the first rule of giving any toast or any speech is whatever whatever length you want to do make it less than that because no one ever says, I wish that person had gone on a lot longer. Um, that's almost always true with movies, too. Almost always. It's like, okay, I've done it. I've had enough. I kind of want to go back about my life now. Uh, so I thought it was too long. And, and also, I think that it falls into this. Uh, look, I, I understand that there's the, the themes of the movie was there's kind of the above ground. You know, there's the, the people that are up the stairs and people that are down the stairs. People that are down the stairs are lower class and struggling. And, you know, they have actual rivers of you know feces that flood through their apartment. And there's bad. And they want fumigation from the street to come into their home to kill the big bugs they live around. I mean, it's, you know, it's 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 rough. I mean, there's a little bit of a, of a Dickensian vibe that comes through in some of the especially some of the earlier stuff with this poor family it's basically sort of poor family rich family and the poor family finds a way to glom on to the uh, the rich family and then things take a big twist at the end which by the way i saw coming you know a million miles away it's not not really surprising at all um but the family that's the poor family is very clever and very industrious and seems to be rather hardworking and good schemers. And and so it's, you know, it's it's a little hard to see how this family is unable to get out of the the basement that they're in, given how hard they how hard they work at trying to run these scams and how effective they are at it. And they seem very energetic and and appealing and and smooth and intelligent. And, you know, they're, they're good. They're good at being con men and women, basically. But they've tried so hard to get out of the basement and they can't. I'm not saying that never happens, but it struck me as a little bit the one of the underlying themes of this seems to be that the the upper class family is, you know, arrogant and and kind of naive and doesn't get it and is dumb. I mean, they're they're not sympathetic. The upper class family is not sympathetic. The family that gloms onto them is made very sympathetic throughout the movie. And you end up saying to yourself, okay, well, why why is this family living in the basement and why is this family living up the stairs in the beautiful house that's idyllic and and where people spend, you know, too much money on foolish things and whereas the poor family doesn't have enough money for important things, right? Why does this disparity occur? And you know, ultimately what you take away from this is that it's just a it's a question of luck and it's injustice. Uh, I don't think that's really the way that it tends to work out in real life. Now, people do have hit with hard times, hit with, the, you know, a, a serious illness, hit with a car. Uh, you know, people have alcoholism. They, you know, there are things that come up that can derail one's uh, economic progress in life. But it tends to be the case from what I've seen that if you are really if you are a intelligent, hardworking, and persistent, you can better your circumstance. Uh, in this country, and I, I, would just, I think it's true in South Korea, too, where they have a pretty dynamic economy that's done very, very well, certainly compared to North Korea, where everyone's the same. 
South Korea. South Korea got people in the, living in the basement, people living in the big house. North Korea is the, the society built on all equality. You know, everyone's completely equal. And everyone's just living in slums, basically, except for the very thin echelon of, by the way, it's not even really slums, worse than slums. They're prisons, really, effectively. They're all living in a giant prison. Looks like a prison. Food's like a prison. Uh, except for the actual Communist Party, who, of course, have access to goods from the rest of the world and, and effectively benefit from the capitalism that they say they hate so much because they'll bring in all these imports and, and all the rest of it. So I, I thought it was, uh, it was a pretty, pretty well-done movie for what it was, but I, I think some of the ways it's thematically presented, you know, it's a big class warfare, a big class warfare vibe. A lot of envy of the stupid, unfeeling, uncaring, wealthy people, and a lot of look at this family that's just scrapping to get by and doing what they have to do in order to be, you know, in order to just be able to feed their children from the, from the poor family. I mean, is is that is that really the lesson of of capitalist uh, free market societies where there is rule of law and there is the right to rise or the ability to rise? Is that really what we take away from it? I, you know, I, look at hey, here I am talking. At least it's a movie that makes people think and talk, which I will I will give it credit for that. At least it was a worthwhile experience in that regard, and it is well executed. There's some very clever, kind of funny sequences in it, and and I think it's good. So you know, I give it a B plus. Best picture? Well, no, but a lot of the best pictures in recent years. I mean, that movie Birdman with Michael Keaton, for example, was just terrible. So I can't even remember some of the more recent. And the movie with the woman who has who has a sexual relationship with her aquarium pet. I didn't like that one either. Thanks for listening to the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Like soft butter on warm toast. Time to spread some freedom coast to coast. It's time for Roll Call. Roll Call. I missed you all over the weekend, so I'm excited to get a chance to do some Roll Call here. Uh, so if you want to be a part of it, it's very easy. Just write us a message on Facebook at facebook.com slash bucksexton or send an email to Team Buck at iHeartMedia.com. Got a bunch of roll call to get to today. And also, I hope you're having a chance to uh, check out the Buck Sexton show. That is the local WOR show here in New York City, the New York area. You should be able to hear it if you're even within a few hundred miles in New York, I think. I think 710 WOR goes, the signal goes quite a way. It's quite a ways. It's an AM on the AM dial. Uh, so please do tune in. Uh, the more people listen to that show, the better. Because we got we got big plans, not just for the digital world, but for terrestrial radio, too, here for the Freedom Hut. All right, Karen. Hi, Buck. You are right, as usual. Biden, Bloomberg, and Sanders are all too old to be boomers. After World War II ended in 1945, large families were popular. This was referred to as the post-war baby boom, hence the term boomers. Biden, Bloomberg, and Sanders are also too young to be the greatest uh, greatest generation. They are members of the so-called silent generation, often defined as born between 1928 and 1945. Yep. Karen, thank you. That was the, uh, the generational description that I was looking for. You are all correct. And see, that's why I know I've always got to bring, I got to come correct to the Freedom Hunt. I got to bring the bring the accuracy because people listen to the show know a lot of stuff and expect me to 
tell them things that are correct all the time, as as they well should, and that is something that we uh, we adhere to as a, a fundamental tenet of the show. Don, good evening, Buck. I agree with you. We can't take Bloomberg as a Democratic nominee lightly, but the difference in two billionaires running for president is one is trying to buy back his conscience with Americans and the other doesn't have to. Obviously, the Democratic Party unknowingly vetted President Trump over the last three years and have confirmed or president still has our president still has his conscience. Shields high. Um, OK, thank you so much, Don. Appreciate your analysis. Mark, I've been a Buck Sexton fan since the Red Eye days with Greg Gutfeld and only recently found your podcast and have become a daily listener. Well, Mark, thank you, man. I appreciate it. Please keep listening. Looking at the damn presidential field, I have to wonder if the DNC leadership decided months ago that they were going to field the B team this year, knowing very well that beating an incumbent with the best economy in the last half century is a hill too steep to climb. Joe Biden, Elizabeth Warren, none of them are inspiring. Sacrifice this group in 2020 and save your A team for 2024. Continued success with all your endeavors. Shields high. Mark. Mark, thank you so much. Um, uh, that's great. But yeah, I used to have a lot of fun doing the Red Eye show with Greg Gutfeld back in the day. Kind of funny. It's actually the first tr- the first Fox News show I was ever on as a guest was Red Eye with Greg Gutfeld. And then I think the second one was Megyn Kelly's show. So I'm always thankful to Megyn Kelly. I haven't heard from Megyn in a very long time, but I'm always thankful to Megyn for putting me on in prime time and being the first person willing to do so. Um, haven't heard from Greg in a while, but you know I'm sure he's a very busy guy. Uh, let's see what we have here. Um, oh, yes. You asked about the B team, or you brought up, rather, your analysis of the B team here and whether Democrats are essentially doing what sometimes a professional sports team will do. See, producer Mark, I know about this. Like, does this apply in hockey, too? I know that sometimes in football, or no, a better example is basketball. In basketball, you want your team to lose toward the end if they're already stinking because you want them to get a good draft pick. Is this true in, uh, well, in hockey as well? pretty much in every sport other than baseball, except uh, hockey and basketball now have draft lotteries. So even if you're the worst team, you only have a 25% chance of getting. Oh, I didn't know that. I, th- I thought yeah. if you're the worst, you got the best pick. It used to be that way, but then it wasn't as fair. Because then teams would tank. Teams would tank. Right, yeah, exactly. Again, that would In make the sense. NFL, you can still tank. Okay. That's the only sport you can really do it. Yeah, but that's because then you're you're tanking, but like you're getting crushed out on the field, and it actually hurts. So I feel like it's yeah, like exactly. you don't want to, you know, you don't want to leave your QB like, oh, I just decided not to block for him today because we want to lose this game. Like that's a bad idea. Exactly. Whereas basketball, you can kind of just let them go take an extra layup or two and be like, all right, we lost this one. Or oh, just well. play your terrible player. Yeah, or just play your yeah. play your bench squad. That's it. When, when did they make that change? About the it was last uh, few years, early two thousands. Okay, it's been yeah, a little it's while. Been a long time. Yeah, but anyway, that, that's kind of what. What uh, Mark is saying here is that, you know, do the Democrats put forward a weak field? No, man, I, I, Mark, I, I think that that's the field is weak. Mark, not to be confused with producer Mark, the field is weak because it is. Uh, if they had, you know, look, if they could run Obama a third term, I think they would. And I think that that would be that would be formidable. Uh, let's be honest about it. That would be more formidable. Obama coming back out if he could, which he can't. But Obama coming back out and running would be certainly a stronger candidate than any of these Democrats, any of them, honestly. Um, Doug, hey, Buck, I heard your passing reference the other day about the Americans. So what do you think? Doug, I think the Americans is an excellent show. Um, I, I give it an A minus. I think it's definitely worth watching. 
I've got a few shows in the mix these days I'm trying to get through, but I also have books to read and research to do for this show. So, you know, I, I don't have that much free time to, to get through any of this, but I'm, I'm into The Americans, Narcos, and the most recent season of Peaky Blinders right now. And when I'm folding laundry, I put on The Office because it's just amazing. It's just, it's just never... If you're looking for something that lets your brain just sort of turn off, I think The Office is, in a good way, The Office is a, is a top choice. Um, but yeah, man, I think The Americans is really good. And as, it gets into a bit more of the realities of espionage, which is when you're talking about human sources and human intelligence, a lot of espionage is leveraging personal relationship, understanding psychology. Uh, that's what source running is. You know, espionage, spying. You know, James Bond is cool for what it is, but James Bond is effectively like a paramilitary operative who wears black tie a lot. I mean, it, it doesn't really bear any resemblance whatsoever to actual espionage and, and intelligence work. Um, that's, you know, spy craft. I mean, James Bond is not really a spy. He's kind of a uh, an action hero. He's kind of an action hero who works for a spying agency, but doesn't really, is very little, especially in the more recent versions, is very little that resembles actual spy work. Whereas the Americans... The way the FBI handles sources, and look, it's it's stylized, and you know everyone's having affairs with everybody and doing all kinds, of, you know. But it's a, it's a show. You, you got to watch the show, right? I mean, you got to enjoy it. But uh, the Americans does a pretty good job of that. Uh, Matt Buck, love your show. Have been a longtime Russian Hannity listener. Discovered you about a year ago. I love the imitations you perform, especially Granny Warren and Mike Bloomberg. You have a loyal listener. Keep up the good work. P.S. Producer Mark is awesome too. Producer Mark, look at look at you, a little high five, a little shout out, huh? A little extra pep I, in your step I like step these today. messages, yeah. Yeah, uh. yeah, there we go. Producer Mark is awesome, too. He is? Yeah. Mm. There, there we have. I mean, the people have spoken. What else can you say? Michael, Buck, just wondering your thoughts on the conservative message being propagated more these days than we are aware of, and do you think it's starting to win over more people than we think? There are so many podcasts and radio shows with great communicators. Your continued rise in footprint... YouTubers, Turning Point, Daily Wire. Is the conservative message beginning to resonate more than we are aware? Shields high. Michael, the answer to your question is, I hope so, but I don't know. There is definitely a surge in young conservative footprint in the digital world. And you mentioned some of the big players in that space. You know, I've been very um, adamant in the last couple of years about doing more and more you know, because we have a terrestrial radio show here that's on 160 stations across the country. But I also want us to be building out as big of a digital footprint as possible. I mean, I may have been retweeted by the president uh, five times over the weekend, I think it was. Well, this four. weekend, too? Wow. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's why I had to, like, get some butter and get your head through the door. Yeah, okay, that makes sense. it is true. You know, I, I, had a little, I had a little pep in my step. From the weekend too, you know the POTUS. He likes the Buck tweets, man. I don't know what to say. You got to get yep. him on the show. Thanks for thanks for putting up the new uh, the new show imaging though. By the way, you know what I mean. Yeah. So people actually are seeing that the the Freedom Hut now. We're very stylized in here on yeah, our you, on our social. Your Twitter black uh, and white. Your Twitter heading is just your head now. Yeah, it's just my head. Which I don't know if it's going to fit in that if it keeps on getting retweeted. Just by the barely president. got it fit. Yeah, we had to do a little bit fit, of resizing because yeah. the cranium is massive. So, yes, uh, there is more of a digital conservative footprint. I hope it's going to convince more people. Um, I never get asked to speak at college campuses, including my own college, which I don't know why that is. But, you know, I get asked to speak at other things, but I'm not 
considered part of the of the college speaker crew, but I would love to speak to more college kids and uh, be able to reach them younger because I think that I think people, you know, even if they're not necessarily ready to hear the truth, I think they appreciate intelligent intelligent arguments. I'd like to I'd like to think that I'd like to believe that. Um, Caroline, sweet Carol. Uh, you were speaking of the generations the other day, and you missed one, the silent generation. Um, there we go. Yes, this we are, we kind of dealt with this. We are They're called silent because they were born into a very scary world and just kept their heads down. They remember blackouts and having metal name tags in case of attack. They came of age in the 1950s, saw the economic boom, settled down to have a normal family life, and then wham, the upheaval of the 1960s hit, and they had to shut up and put their heads down again. Also, you spoke of Gen Y. Gen Y is the same thing as millennials. They came after Gen X, and they came of age around the year 2000. So it was Gen Y, Gen Y2K, and then we finally settled on calling them millennials. Is that right? Is Gen Y millennial the same? Do we know? I feel like I've heard that before. Hmm. I know we didn't have a name for a long time, and then a couple years ago we became millennials. Yeah. Mm. Okay. No, that's it. I mean, I'll check on this. We'll we'll find you the facts, because that's what we do. We're bringing the facts. You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Katrina, thank you for having Sean Parnell on again and highlighting his candidacy against Connor Lamb. You have fans in the Pittsburgh area, too, by the way. And how have you never heard of Primanti Brothers? Seriously, a Pittsburgh icon. You got to come to the Berg and try one. I've never been to. Have you ever been to Pittsburgh, producer Mark? Yeah, a few times. Nice place. It is. I hear actually it's a really nice, nice really nice city. That's really had a renaissance in the last twenty years or so. Yeah, I was there a few months ago for a wedding. I know they filmed a lot of uh, the Batman, the Christopher Nolan Batman movies Did in they? downtown Pittsburgh. I didn't yeah, know that. That's actually where a lot but, of uh, Primanti's. I know you're not a big sandwich guy because of the yeah, celiac, the bread, but yeah. they put French fries on the sandwich. Ooh, that's their big Ooh. claim to fame. When I used to eat gluten, I remember being in Greece for the summer. And they would take uh, essentially, you know, in the, in the gyro, they would cha- they would take French fries and oh. stuff it in with the shawarma meat, and then wrap it in a warm pita. Oh, that's fantastic! Which was good. Greek is one of my favorite cuisines. Greek is fan. Greek food when it's Greek. good is really fantastic. I totally agree. I'm actually getting hungry right now just thinking about it. Um, but yeah, no. But look, Sean Parnell has been a friend of mine now for. I mean, we're going to be friends going on ten years here soon. So Sean and I go way back. He's a fantastic guy, and. The great thing is I'm not a journalist, so I can support who I want and say what I want. And uh, I, I want to I want the Freedom Hunt to do everything it can to help Sean Parnell. I want to I want to see him in the halls of the United States Congress. He'd be a great congressman. He's a he's a great dude. So, and that's a big race. Him and Connor Lamb. People are going to look at that as a bellwether for. You know, in in a state of Pennsylvania, you got two veterans. Connor Lamb is kind of the of the Mayor Pete school of. You know, impressive resume, you know, a little bit sounds a little centrist sometimes, but really, you know, really isn't. And uh, he's going up against Sean Parnell, who's just, you know, he's just the dude you want to have as as your good buddy, as your next door neighbor, as the, uh, you know, coach of your son's little league team and as your United States congressman. We want Sean Parnell to win. So I'm going to do whatever I can to help help my man, Sean. Eric. Responding to Friday's show, I heard you knock Marvel movies, but haven't said anything until now. Holy bleep, Buck. Please watch the Marvel movies in order. Once you do that, you'll see they're fantastic and a fantastic franchise. Producer Mike is producer Mark is right. You are wrong. Love you. Shield sigh. Look at this. Producer Mark is right. I'm wrong. Now now yeah, that now this is true. what it's come to. 
this is what it has come to in the hut. There's like a there's like a mutiny going on over the Marvel movies. I mean, that has been true for months that we've been arguing about this. Uh, I know. I think I think there's like four. I actually I can't even think of anybody who agrees with me on the Marvel thing. They all agree with you. I was watching the other week, and there's, uh-huh, the, yeah. there's the you know the the Scarlett Johansson and the guy with the bow and arrow. Who's scared of a guy running around with a bow and arrow? <sighs> I know. Yeah, I, I, everyone thinks you're right and I'm wrong. It's fine. Whatever. I got to keep people on their toes. Can't be right about all the things all the time. At least I'm willing to watch it. But the one that I'm watching, they're all moping around. Oh, yeah, because you're watching the of, end of Billions this. of people were killed by Thanos. Uh, I'm like, what am I watching? You have to whole, watch the whole build up to that movie. Uh, you it's can't like watching watch a big, end. big funeral. All right. Well, it's I mean, like you watch the eighth Harry Potter movie but didn't watch the first seven. How many Avengers movies are there? Um, Roughly. In the ones that you would have to watch for this, probably like 10 or so. What? Yeah. No. Yeah. It's go. It's. It I thought there were like. I, I honestly thought there were like three. It starts in 2008. It goes from Iron Man on. Is this portion of the Marvel Cinematic Universe? I did like Iron Man, so I'm not a comic book hater. That's yeah. why. That's why I haven't been. It just started with Iron Man, and then this chapter mm. of the MCU ended with Endgame. You know what I think is an underrated comic book movie, by the way, Blade. I thought the Wesley Snipes. It. What? What is Blade? Dude, it's good. All right. It's good. You know, do you like vampire stuff though, or not, not? really. Yes, you're no. not a vampire guy. You got to be into the vampire stuff. If you're gonna like Blade. Anyway, that was one of the, that was like my favorite comic book adaptation movie, other than Batman and and the original. I like the original Superman because he's like so all American. I kind of liked him, even mm. though if you look back, like the tights were a little weird. There hasn't been a good Superman movie in, in a, a long, long time. time. The Superman versus Batman movie. Well, I'm almost like, is it this was awful? Is this a parody? Oh my god! Are they kidding? How, I wanted to leave the theater. It's really bad. Yeah. Awful. How could they make such a bad movie with two such iconic figures? I don't understand. I'm just hoping the new Batman movies are good. Wait, who's in it? Robert Pattinson. I am super skeptical. I am too, but- I, uh, yeah. that guy, is he the Twilight guy? Yes. Right? Mm-hmm. <sighs> I'm skeptical also, but I'm still going to watch it. Ah, uh, man. All right, we'll see. Um, Alice said, hi, Buck. I had to chuckle when you said your listeners are complaining about Bloomberg ads- my husband runs a radio company, and Bloomberg has placed a big buy. They want to run copy using the call letters of his station to address listeners. Um, uh, people might not understand the political ad laws, but they sure know when they're offended by an ad. Not to mention, this is ground zero Bernie country. Not sure how this will play out, but it's an example of how the man's and his team's complete arrogance. Yeah, look, I've been saying it before. It's, it's actually like a law thing. There's nothing I can do. So I, please don't get mad. There's nothing I can do about the Bloomberg ads. Again. Hi, this is Mayor Bloomberg. Producer Mark and Buck love me and want to vote for me. It's like, we can't stop him from yeah. saying it, Producer Mark. I feel like people just turn the podcast down when they hear us explaining why we have Bloomberg ads, because we keep getting messages. Yeah, I know. I don't know. I don't know what else to say. So that that's our, that's the public I'm service. I'm just going to reply to you with the same canned message I've sent everyone else. And that's the way to do it. All right, everybody. You know how to contact us tomorrow. The show will be amazing, as it is every day. Love you all. Shields high.